1764, southern France. Marie-Jean Vallée is tending a herd of cattle in the Mercois forest in the town of Langon. She's alone with the animals. It's a beautiful summer's day, but grey clouds on the horizon bring the promise of something to come. Still, better to enjoy it while the weather lasts. For a lone cow herd, it's one of the perks of the job. At this time, France has yet to undergo its revolution. The United States is still the 13 colonies, and the devastation wrought by the Napoleonic Wars is but a twinkle in the eye of a future dictator. Napoleon himself won't be born for another five years yet. But France at the time is still teetering on the brink of collapse. Much like a sunny day threatened by rain clouds, there was a storm coming for the Ancien Régime. Defeat at the hands of the British and Prussians had cost her many overseas colonies, notably Canada, and all but bankrupted the treasury. The nobles filled their days with wild and lavish parties, whilst the working man picked up the tab with ever-spiralling taxes. Still, for now, at least it's a sunny summer's day, with nothing at all to ruin it. But Marie's reverie of the summer is broken when she hears the cattle getting agitated. She appraises the sky, the weather's still holding, so what's getting them worked up? She then thinks to mind her surroundings. It could be the case they think they've seen something, but wolves aren't usually so bold as to approach a herd of cattle, not least so near to the town. But then she spots it. At the edge of the clearing, prowling low in the tree line is a shape moving in the underbrush. As it clears the vegetation, Marie can't quite believe her eyes. What stands before her is no mere wolf. In fact, she could scarcely call it an animal. It's large, bigger than any wolf she's ever seen. Canine may be in nature, but with a tawny brown pelt, low, flat head, and an unnaturally wide mouth with rows of sharp teeth. As the beast stalks towards her, her heart races. Far too aggressive for an animal acting alone, and each of its strides seem far longer than it should be able to walk, it closes the distance fast. Just before the monster can pounce on her, the least likely of allies comes to her aid, the herd of cattle she'd been tending. They stare the hound down, causing it to reconsider its angle of approach. But still it's eyeing her with a stare of malice, she has seconds to consider her next move. Make a break for it? If the cattle scatter, she's done for. Stand and fight? How could any lone person tackle such a fearsome beast? The seconds pass too soon and the beast is on the move again, but the supernatural speed it cuts a path towards her. Animals panic and scatter, and Marie looks on in horror and raises her only weapon, a herding crook in defense of herself. Better make it count. But before the jaws of the monstrosity, wide and terrible, can close in on her, one of the bulls of the herd decides to stand up for its watcher and charges the hulking canine down. This drives it off and it skulks back into the tree line, but not for the sake of injury. In truth, the beast looks almost unfazed. It seems more that it's lost interest in this particular target. Marie can hardly believe her luck. She rushes back to town without a second thought, lest the beast decide to try its luck again. But what warning she gives isn't heeded nearly strongly enough. The townsfolk try to calm her down. It's just a wolf. Wolves are common in the forests of the south of France, especially this area, and they attack people all the time. She really should be more careful. But when the first victim of the creature that would become known as La Bête, the beast, is found, the doubters are quickly silenced. 14-year-old Jean Bullet, a shepherd girl, is the first in a long list of those killed by the beast. 
The signature mark, throats torn out. But the precision far exceeding that of a rabid wolf, the beast is thorough, meticulous, with an accuracy not seen in the wildlife of the region before. The months go by and the attacks escalate. Soon the whole region is in a state of utter panic. Lone men, women and children are being torn to shreds by what some assume must be several different animals, but the descriptions are all eerily similar from those who survived the attacks. Tawny brown pelt, a tufted tail, dark markings on its hides and a precision strike aimed directly at the neck. One thing's for sure, this is no ordinary wolf. When the young Jacques Portefeuille and his seven friends succeed in defending themselves against the beast, it catches the attention of the king, Louis XV. He offers a substantial reward for Jacques and his friends and promised that he would personally see to it that the beast was brought to justice. Scores of hunters are summoned to the forests, some 30,000 in total. The king's personal guards, professional wolf hunters, mercenaries, all seeking the beast. Their different strategies begin to interfere with one another. Some favor large packs of bloodhounds, others prefer solo stalking in the tree line with a cat-like tread. At first they think they've won. A wolf, nearly six feet long, is shot by Francois Antoine, the king's arquebus bearer and lieutenant of the hunt in September of 1765. The beast is stuffed and brought back to Paris before going on the hunt for the rest of the pack. After all, there had to be more, right? Right indeed. Antoine tracks the mother and some pups, each larger than the last, and found that they'd resembled the Bersaron breed of dog. Maybe they'd interbred? But one of them seemed unaccounted for, and so Antoine was never fully satisfied he'd solved the problem. But the royal court was. He was granted 9,000 livres, nearly 100,000 US dollars in today's money, and a plethora of titles for the effort of bringing down the beast. But the beast wasn't brought down. Antoine knew it, and so did everybody else who'd hunted it. Antoine had scored a great coup against some of the culprits of some of the attacks, but the real beast was still out there. It had survived far worse than musket balls and carried on, and sure enough, it struck again. In December, a 12-year-old boy managed to save a 6-year-old from being dragged away by the beast. The real deal, large and red-brown with the grin of a devil out of the deepest reaches of the underworld. The hunt resumed, and before it ended, more than a dozen other victims would meet a terrible fate at its jaws. Finally, Jean Chastel, a local hunter acting with the aid of a nobleman, felled the great beast on the 19th of June, 1767. Chastel had taken no chances. He double-loaded his gun with a combination of bullets and buckshot in the biggest caliber he could chamber, self-made out of silver. It was brought back to the nearby castle, given a post-mortem, and stuffed. This was believed to have been the final beast because after that, the attack stopped. All that tragedy, all that violence wrought by one or a handful of wild animals, at a time when Enlightenment Europe was beginning to believe itself above nature, with the discovery of electricity not long before, new science and technology made man seem impervious to the whims of the beasts of the earth. But apparently, that veneer was just that and this carelessness had cost the poor people of rural France everything. So what happened during those fateful years from 1764 to 1767? Was it one beast? Or several? Wolves? Dogs? Maybe something a little more... exotic? Today on Demystified, we look at the strange mystery 
of the Beast of Gévaudan. Today's mystery is the Beast of Gévaudan. Now, as with some of them that we've covered before, this isn't a full mystery because it's sort of solved. There was a monstrous beast, or several, that prowled the forests of Gévaudan, a province of Imperial France located in south-central France, today corresponding to the area of the province of Lézère, and it killed scores of people before being brought down by a hunter. Or was there? Perhaps it was several beasts. A pack, maybe, or several packs? The first thing I think we should talk about is the status of wolves in the region at the time. Now, whilst in modern Europe wolves are something of a rarity, wolves were a fact of life for the people of Gévaudan. They prowled the forests and, on occasion, attacked unwary travellers and shepherds. But there are several important distinctions to be made between your bog-standard French wolves and the beasts of Gévaudan. Firstly, the beast, again I'll be using beast or beasts plural because there was one or several, the beast was much bigger than the wolves at the time. Now, wolves can get pretty big, that much is clear. They ain't chihuahuas. But the beast was bigger even than that. Secondly, it had a different coloration and build. A tawny brown body as opposed to grey. A tail with a tuft at the end. Brown markings on the body. A long, flat head with a wide mouth. Didn't look like any wolf any of the people there had ever seen before. And thirdly, it didn't seem to act like a wolf. Now. Wolves are pack hunters, that's kind of the whole thing. A lone wolf isn't actually all that dangerous. Don't go hugging one, they can still very much do you a mischief, but the advantage that wolves have is pack tactics. This beast seemed to hunt alone. Moreover, it hunted its prey in a way that wolves generally don't, charging them down and going straight for the jugular. Literally. This isn't the usual modus operandi of wolves. Now, any animal attacking a person will go for a weak spot but we'll see in a minute why it's very particular that all the accounts very specifically mention the beast's fascination with necks. What I also wish to impress is that herein lies the mystery. It wasn't just a bog-standard wolf stalking the people of Chevardin. And even if it was, it would have been a hell of a wolf. Many people were killed during the hunting frenzy that accompanied the beast's attacks, and most of the wolves could be felled with one good shot from a skilled hunter. This beast was known to take multiple shots and shrug them off as though it was nothing. And it might be easy enough for us to just laugh this off as an exaggeration, but the attacks kept happening. One study from 1987 asserted that between 210 attacks, 113 people were killed all told, with 98 of them having been at least partially eaten by the beast. This is coupled with the fact that every time the beast was reported to have been killed, it would only be a matter of time before it showed up again, having attacked people again. This then lends us to the idea that Antoine preferred, Francois Anton, the king's huntsman much admired, that it was a pack. Antoine's own successes seemed to vindicate this idea. He shot one beast, he then tracked its family and shot them too. With the reported sizes and ferocities of the various creatures, this was no callous act as much as it was a necessary precaution. But if it was a pack... Why did the beast seem to act outside of the pack dynamic? Why did the rest of the pack not join in for hunts, as it would be the case if it was a wolf? Several of the supposed beasts were recognised by those it had attacked, the beast that Francois Anton shot, known as the Wolf of Chaz, and the actual 
Beast of Gévaudan itself, or rather the one that is referred to as that, were both recognised by some of their would-be victims. So this suggests that it was, in fact, two animals at least. You've got the Wolf of Chars and the Beast of Gévaudan. Maybe. Were the two related? Were they part of the same pack? Or unrelated? And that Françoise Antoine ended up solving a different but equally bad problem? With some of these details established, we can now kind of look at the theories. The first and most obvious theory is that the beasts, plural, of Gévaudin, were a pack of wolves. Now, this would be the Occam's razor approach. Simplest answer is the best one. This time, I'm going to say it's not my favourite option. We'll get to why in a moment. For now, though, the evidence. Firstly, wolves, very common in that area at the time, and they did regularly attack people. Wolves aren't just big dogs, that's something that does need saying. The cuddly, fluffy wolves you'll see at wildlife sanctuaries are semi-domesticated, so genuine wolves, but being raised with humans their whole lives and taught to behave. Real, wild wolves are far more vicious, and they care very little about where their next meal comes from. Wolves live in packs of about six, but can be up to as many as 30 in a big formation. This is relevant when discussing the number of beasts supposedly shot. Doubtless, a lot of the beasts thought to have been killed really were just plain old wolves. Antoine was recorded to have killed at least one male wolf, one female wolf, and several pups, but he also believed himself that he'd missed one of the pups. This sheds a little bit of doubt on the Beast of Gévaudan being that pup of that set, belonging to the Wolf of Chaz. If it was a pup, regardless of how big it was, how could it be so big and aggressive. It must have been a grown wolf or other animal of another pack or group, I think. As to whether the wolves could match the physical descriptions of the beasts, well, that's a little interesting. Let's say we take the descriptions here at face value, and I feel like we're entitled to, because the reason for this is so many of the supposed beasts were stuffed and given medical post-mortems, with people verifying some of the supposed traits. So we're not talking fiery red eyes and void black skin here. The tawny brown pelt and unusual head shape could be the result of the creation of wolf dogs, the breeding of a wolf and a dog. The breed assumed, as mentioned earlier, is the Beauceron, a type of dog normally with a black coat with red-brown markings underneath, somewhat similar to the beast's general description. What made Antoine sure that it was this was the double dew claws he found on his beasts, a genetic trait of the Beauceron. Dew claws are vestigial digits on a dog's foot. Beaucerons have a double set of them. Interestingly, wolf dogs are not infertile, as other animals may be, like a mule, for instance, the offspring of a donkey and a horse is infertile, wolf dogs are not. This is because domestic dogs, Canis lupus familiaris, and Eurasian wolves, Canis lupus lupus, to use the broadest taxonomy, are so closely related that the former is effectively a subspecies of the latter. Thus, a very particular subbreed of wolf dog could have been bred in the forest of Gévaudan, resulting in a large and aggressive dog wolf hybrid with the distinctive double dew claws of the Beauceron. But I'm not fully convinced because it doesn't take all of our boxes with the Beast of Gévaudan itself. I'm more interested with the next theory, that the Beast of Gévaudan, at least the one that was killed by Jean Chastel in 1767, was in fact a lion. I know what you're thinking. A lion? In France? Well, hear me out. This was at a time when the wealthy elites of Europe were desperately importing all sorts of exotic animals to fill their menageries. It was very much the in thing to have all sorts of strange and dangerous animals roaming one's country estate, if one could afford such a thing. 
That answers the question of how the lion could have got there. But let's get to the real meat of the evidence. Firstly, fits the physical description to a T. Tawny brown fur, strange hair-like development on its head, consistent with the mane of an adolescent male lion, tufted tail, wider mouth on a flatter head. All of these features line up better with a lion than they do a wolf, no matter what dog you breed it with. Furthermore, the brown markings on the body are also consistent with some types of lion rather than the fur of a wolf, which tends to be coloured more in a gradient. Secondly, it fits the descriptions of what it was capable of doing and did. Jump 30 feet in a single bound? That's a lion. Drag a fully grown adult human off by itself? That's a lion. Consistently, accurately, specifically attack the necks of its victims? You'd better believe that's a lion. Plus, man-eating lions are well attested in historical fact. It's generally believed that the reason for this is that when a big cat, and this can be any big cat, it could be a lion, a tiger, a jaguar, a leopard, a panther, when a big cat suffers tooth damage, it's no longer able to hunt its usual prey. Usually they go for deer or buffalo or gazelle, but these animals have rather thick hides. Now, this wouldn't normally be a problem for the big cat in question, but when the tooth is damaged, they can no longer hunt that prey, and so they turn to humans. From the man-eaters of Savo to the tigers of India, big cats do seem to have a penchant for going on rampages amongst human communities when the necessary conditions are met. Finally, the people of Gévaudan would have heard of lions, but I doubt they would have seen lions, maybe once in their lives if they were very fortunate, or I suppose unfortunate as the case may be. But most would have recognised them vaguely from heraldry, wherein the use of lions and leopards was somewhat interchangeable. But that image, tufted tail, manesque fur, the coloration, that would have been all too familiar for someone who knows what a lion looks like. But these were people who didn't necessarily know what that looks like and yet gave continuous reliable descriptions of the beast as being like that, not like a wolf or like a dog, being an animal, a beast, maybe canine, maybe not, but with those features. So they weren't all doing some collaborative jape to pretend like it was a lion, these were separate accounts that all happened to line up to match a description of a beast that these people would not necessarily have seen before outside of the context of the Beast of Jevaudan. Something to think about. The final theory is that it was a dog specifically bred for purpose. One writer even suggested that Jean Chastel the hunter bred the dog himself. The evidence for this assertion is unclear. Why Chastel would be the one to breed the killer dog, since he was the one who brought it down, is unknown. I guess the argument is that he bred it and trained it to attack people so he could claim the reward. Such a thing isn't unheard of. Hero syndrome, it's sometimes called. Firefighters that become arsonists, they set the fire so they get to be the one to put it out. Ergo, they get the reward and all of the fame and the glory. The theory then suggests that the reason that the beast was so bulletproof was that Chastel armoured it with boar hides, which gave it both its strange appearance and its survivability. But unless Chastel bred an entire lineage of these beasts, it doesn't explain why so many of them were brought down, nor why he waited so long to do it. After all, Francois Antoine got the 9,000 livres in the showering of rewards. Sure, Chastel gets to go down in history and becomes a local legend, but he doesn't get the lion's share of the reward, if you'll pardon the pun. So I personally don't find this theory particularly convincing. So, what was the Beast of Gévaudan? 
I think a combination of our first and second theories, and I think we do have to delineate the wolf from the beast, the wolf that was shot by Francois Antoine and the pack versus the actual beast of Gévaudan, which were used interchangeably at the time, but I would say they're two different animals. I do think it was multiple animals, one primary culprit, and then the secondaries. Francois Antoine shot a pack of wolf dogs, bred from Eurasian wolves and Beauceron dogs, but also the beast of Gévaudan was a lion, escaped from a menagerie and let loose upon the forests of rural France. It lines up too perfectly for me with the descriptions given by those that were attacked and those who brought it down. It looks like a lion, and the people of rural France wouldn't have been able to reliably fake that on the descriptions alone. It also goes a long way to explaining the particulars of the case, the feats of strength of the beast, the supposed invulnerability to attacks that would easily fail your average wolf and or dog, the penchant for attacking the necks of the victims with powerful bites and then dragging them off. For my two cents, I think that about sums it up, really. It's not perfect, and I would fully understand if you didn't buy the whole lion thing, but I think those two elements combined basically cover your bases. But what I want to talk about now is the story of it, how it became a part of history. There's lots of instances of man-eating animals throughout history, so why does this one get the spotlight? Firstly, it's a big example of early news reporting. This story got very heavily disseminated by printing press, an invention that at the time was several hundred years old, but now average Joe blogs are starting to become a media consumer, and the information has its new audience, and paper and printing becomes cheaper and easier than ever to produce. Françoise Morenas, the creator and editor of the Courier d'Avignon, used a new type of reporting called Fait divers, stories of everyday incidents in small villages that would be similar to true crime stories today, to tell the story. His reporting in that particular periodical ended up turning the tale from simply some backwater small-time story into a national affair. And when it reached the king, this drummed up a hell of a lot of support for catching the beast. At one point, as I said, nearly 30,000 people were enlisted in the effort, with widespread hunting parties, poisoned bait, the works. On top of that, Stories like the one we began with, Marie-Jean Vallée, also helped to buff the legend. On a side note, I couldn't pin down the date or the particulars of her attack. One source, the one that I used in the beginning, said she was attacked in 1764, the first attack, and that her cattle helped to save her. Another more popular telling says it was 1765, and that she herself drove the beast away, earning her the moniker of the Maid of Gévaudan, and a statue that stands to this very day. Which is true, by the way, that statue exists. Ultimately, though, the story of the Beast of Gévaudan is mostly just that. It's a story. The history is real, sure. Feral wolves and one rather unique beast attacked hundreds of people in southern France before the concerted efforts of about 30,000 people brought them to heel. Whether the beast proper was a lion, I can't fully say. I love the idea of it, as I said earlier, but I think it's equally plausible that it was just lots of wolves and that the people attacked bought into their own hype, maybe. There's always an option in cases like these. The story of the Beast of Gévaudan, though, ended up being an interesting parallel to the story of France at the time, though, a rather convenient distraction for the people of France. After all, why worry about Britain taking your colonial holdings and the first and second estates taking all of your property when there's a massive monster savaging shepherds a village over? At a time when the people of France needed something to bind them together, they had a new common enemy, one that presented a clear right and wrong, the savagery of the beast versus the plight of the civilized man. Who won in the end? 
well, in terms of men versus wolves, we all know who won. They're all but extinct in Western Europe, with conservation efforts being made to reintroduce them to the woodlands to preserve and increase biodiversity as well as protect the species. In terms of France, though, well, the Ancien Régime didn't really outlive the beasts. By 1789, a scant two decades later, France had devolved into revolution and a civil war that would see thousands killed in the Reign of Terror, and a monarchy that thought itself untouchable laid low by the common working man. Almost like, say, a haughty and proud huntsman laid low by a humble animal. Then, in 1804, Napoleon Bonaparte was crowned Emperor of France, and the monarchy was back in fashion, sort of. Much like how, in the end, the animals were put down and the reign of man was restored. The analogy isn't perfect, mirroring the scenario we found ourselves in earlier. Britain and Prussia spoiled the fun and sent Napoleon to a series of increasingly remote islands, but humans still hold sway over nature in France. Or do they? Perhaps in a very circumspect way, climate change and the extreme weather it brings should show us that no matter how far in advance we think ourselves to be, nature is the one thing we can't control. We can try. In the Middle East, they've built massive outdoor cooling fans to tackle the heat caused in part by such frivolous inventions. But that's delaying the inevitable. Sooner or later, you come face to face with the beast itself. And when you're staring down your typhoon or hurricane or whatever new storm you face, you'd better hope the beast isn't hungry. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>